you too. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Doom to Bloom podcast. Today, we have a special guest, Hannah. Hi, Hannah. Hi, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Fine, thank you. Yeah. Good. I always like to ask where my guest is coming from. So I am in Jerusalem, Israel. Which is very far away from me because I'm in Ontario, Canada. So I think that's just incredible. (laughs) And I'm so glad we got to connect. Yeah. And I always think when I tell people I live in Jerusalem on, on podcasts, I always get a funny look like it's kind of one of those places where people don't imagine that you can live like Las Vegas. Do people actually live in Las Vegas? Yes, they do. <laughs> people live in Jerusalem. We, we It's a beautiful city. Yeah. Not going to lie. I kind of was one of those people that thought that, <laughs> but it's just, it's based off of everything that the news says. Right. And it yeah. just, yeah. And, and I guarantee you that most of that's not even true, but there you go. <laughs> Interesting. So never believe what you hear all the time. (laughs) So I think you're going to talk to us about trauma, right? Yeah. Are you ready to dive in? Sure. I'll I'll, uh, start by telling you my story. Okay. So I grew up in England and um, I was actually mugged three times. So being mugged once is is pretty bad. Um, Three times was horrendous. The first one happened in when I was still in college. <clears throat> I um, It was the early 80s. I was a punk rocker. I was at Manchester University and it was all about the music and going to gigs and concerts and, you know, which bands and your boyfriend was in the band. <laughs> and that was my whole lifestyle at the time. And uh, I was in a nightclub where um, my boyfriend's band was playing, actually. And this young man who I didn't know, I I never knew who he was. He tried to dance with me and, you know, it was dark and people are dancing and pushing and stuff. And and I pushed him away because I didn't know him and he was putting his hands where he shouldn't. And the next thing I know, his hand was on the back of my head and he smashed my head into a concrete pillar on the side of the dance. And he he actually fractured my skull. I can put my finger right on it. I know nobody else can see it, but I, you, you know, like if you tap a wall, like if you're putting a picture, it, it sounds different in certain places. My yeah. head is, it's different right there where the bone knitted back together. Wow. But it was, you know, I, I was only unconscious for like probably a minute. Um, but when I came to, I um, had lost my eyesight. I, I, I actually couldn't see, for, it was only for about a day, but a lot of these things, when you don't know that they're temporary, it's really frightening. Um, my friends rushed me to the hospital and they actually had to put me in four point restraints on the x-ray table because I couldn't see, well, I could see about an inch in front of my face. My head is a different shape. I've got massive concussion and I was fighting, you know, with the nurses and like, cause I was panicked. I didn't know what was happening. Um, so because they have to leave the room when you have an x-ray, uh, they actually had to tie me to the table cause they were nervous. I was going to fall off and hurt myself again. So I've got a fractured skull, massive concussion. I can't see, and I'm being tied down on a table. So it was it was pretty, pretty gruesome. Um, they let me go home that night, uh, and I I kind of I'm, I remember saying to the doctor, "Can you give me a note for college?" <laughs> because I was still oh, like goodness. like thinking and worrying, and um, so I had two weeks off school, and then I went only back. two weeks. Yeah, two weeks off school. Um, wow. My the That's... swelling, the swelling on my head kind of moved. I remember it kind of the blood flow. It followed the blood flow. It kind of moved to the center of my head. And all my friends made fun of me. They called me melon head for a, for a while. Oh. Um, but it was just like written off as just one of those things that happens when you're a student. You know, um, I don't think anybody knew until quite a bit later when I told them that this boy had attacked me. Everybody thought I'd fallen over. 
you know, because everybody was like drinking and having a good time. And they just thought I tripped. And it wasn't till later it kind of I told people, you know, it was actually a sexual assault. But um, so I recovered from that one pretty well. And then it was about two or three years later, I'd finished college and I'd moved house to another part of Manchester. And the night after I moved, I just walked back about six o'clock in the evening to pick up some fr- some things I'd left with a, a neighbor, a friend. And as I was walking on between these two housing estates, and it was already dark because in Manchester in February, it's already this, you know pitch black and there's just the street lamps and um, three men came out of the dark and slammed me on the ga- ground and beat the living daylights out of me. Um, I thought I was gonna die. I, I can remember hearing myself screaming and and thinking if I can't catch another breath, I'm going to die. If they have a knife, I'm gonna die. Um, I remember also at the same time having a kind of, kind of out of body experience where I was actually, it seemed like about 30 feet up in the air looking down and I could see them beating me. Um, I didn't have any money on me, which is what they were probably looking for, um, which probably made them even more angry. And eventually they, they just ran off and left me on this piece of waste ground. and. Um, and I, I managed to pick myself up and get to a, back to my friend's house. And um, and again, I I was basically given a cup of tea and you know go home, because PTSD had only just been recognised that year in the states, so nobody in Manchester was talking about it. And it was basically you know go home, you know suck it up and walk it off. That was <laughs> the treatment I got. And I remember um, I went home and stayed in bed for a couple of days, and then I. Um, I wanted to tell the police what had happened. I thought they should know. And I remember going down to the front door. I lived in this big old Victorian house that was like split up into um, apartments. And um, I remember going down to the front door and this voice in my head said, last time you left the house, they almost killed you. And I started living with this voice in my head for the next, I know, year or so, like reminding me every time I left the house, you know, two weeks ago, they almost killed you. A month ago, you left the house and you almost died. This became like a recurring voice that I started living with. Um, the police were not kind. They, uh, The detective actually said to me that they knew who did it. He said, these men are going around attacking women. I'm like, I wanted to strangle him. You know, he, and he said, you know, it's we've got more important things to deal with, which just kind of compounded the feeling of helplessness and isolation and, you know, it was, you know, I, I, I came so close to smacking him. <laughs> okay. um, so in that year afterwards, I um, I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping. Um, I was probably drinking to get to sleep. I, I probably, like these days, they'd probably call it self-harm. We didn't even know that word back then, but I would punch the wall in absolute frustration and anger and wake up the next day with my hands all swollen and bruised. Um, and, and the funny thing is I would never tell anybody, like I was, I was dying for someone to know what was going on with me, but then I would hide my hands if I did get out the house, which was kind of rare. I kind of didn't work. And, um, you know, my friends were amazing at first, you know, the first couple of weeks they were very kind, you know, coming and looking in on me, but then they move on to the next thing and the next drama. And, and I was just left with this, you know, reliving and reliving the event in my head all the time. And, and not just the event, but the, the conversation with the policeman, the, you know, why are my friends, you know, like, why don't they realize what's going on? And, you know, very, very tortured in my thinking. Um, and then I it's say it was a long time ago now, but I think it was about a year later when it was coming up to kind of like the anniversary and I was, 
you know, by this point in a pretty bad way, um, I thought I needed to move to London because clearly Manchester was the problem. So I moved down to London to start my career in the entertainment business. I started out in the theatre and I, I've always made, I've always been creative, like I make props and costumes. That's what I did for many years. And I was riding my bike home from the theatre one night <clears throat> and out of the corner of my eye, I saw this young boy who, um, he was about 16 and I, I thought it was weird that he was on a very small child's bike. And the next thing I knew, he threw the bike at my head. So I was riding this way and the bike came that way, like in my neck and shoulders here, it was like, bam, you know, it was like being shot out of a cannon at a brick wall. The impact like went in my neck and shoulders and he actually, um, I didn't know this at the time, but he actually broke my neck. Um, C2 and C3, the vertebrae were cracked right through. Thank God, not the spinal cord, though I'm sure it was bruised because at the time um, for the like, couple of weeks afterwards I had to walk around holding my own head like <laughs> the next day I had a interview wow. at the BBC props department and I remember like doing the interview like this holding my head of course, of course I didn't get the job surprise surprise um but I I I went down pretty fast after that one I um again I wasn't sleeping wasn't eating um I was um you know I, I was absolutely terrified to leave the house because I knew that the world was a scary dangerous place like if you said to me, oh, it's okay, Hannah, let's go for a walk. I'll come with you. I'm like, no, <laughs> you don't understand. I had police reports and, and x-rays to prove that the world is a very scary, dangerous place. And I I was convinced that if a, a bus went out of control in central London, I'd be the person that got run over. You know, I'd be the person who accidentally fell in front of the tube train or something. I, I was losing it that much. And this went on for about uh, another year. Um, and I was barely able to work. I, I was quite a basket case, actually. Um, and eventually I asked for help. Um, I, I got in touch with a um, kind of a crisis center um, and these women were amazing and they really kind of scooped me up and loved me well. And I remember one of, I think the really big turning point for me was when one of them asked me, she said, are you ready to let go of your story? Which at first I was incredibly offended and... Like what I heard her say and what she actually said were two different things. What I heard her say was like, it didn't happen. It didn't hurt and get over it. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I was screaming, it did happen. It did hurt. And I can't get over it. You know, I was continually reliving and reliving it. By the way, my family doctor in Manchester had sent me to the psychiatrist. And I think I only went for one or two appointments because all she got me to do was relive it and relive it like keep telling the story over again and like and I remember at the time thinking why would I go through two panic attacks to leave the house get to the hospital to tell you the story for the 10th time I do that really well at home <laughs> like I need you to show me how to not do it so I had very little faith in anything professional at the time and so I, that you know that's why I went to this crisis center in the end these um, women who were volunteering their time and and they really they really helped me and and I think this idea of letting go of the story was it was really powerful because I had become the girl who was mugged three times, you know that had become my identity, and and it was shaping everything I felt and did and you know everything about me was like you know like wrapped up in this this identity and so she kind of that that simple question statement um, it just kind of shattered it. And, and helped me to see that I wasn't my story. I mean, it was the beginning of a journey, nothing happened overnight. Um, 
you know, so it was the beginning of the journey. I, I'd actually trained as a counselor back in college. I'd worked for Manchester Rape Crisis Centre. So they, they encouraged me to start doing counselling work. So this kind of became my life. Um, I kind of had a, a two careers for, for a good 20 something years, 20, 30 years, where I was working in the entertainment business and coaching and counselling people in between projects. Because when you work freelance in like the theatre and, and first I went to theatre, then TV, then commercials, then movies, you know, you can have downtime in between these projects and I don't like sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> so I would start, you know, coaching and counselling with voluntary organisations and all, all kinds of helping people. So that was the start of getting better. Um, I, when I started working in movies, I moved to California and uh, lived in Los Angeles for 16 years. And um, and I, I did special effects and some really big, um, amazing movies, met amazing people. I worked with Steven Spielberg and John Travolta and uh, Eddie Murphy and all kinds of people. And wow, and, and so, so cool. It, it was, it was very cool. I was getting paid silly money to fly around the world with these amazing people. And it just was, even at the time, it was blowing my mind that, you know, only a few like years, months before, I, there I was, I couldn't get out of my front door, terrified thinking my life was over. And then just with this shift of thinking and this new perspective that these women like guided me to, like they pointed me in the right direction. I started to see that, um, I would still have scary thoughts, but I didn't have to listen to them. I could show up anyway. And during this time, I, I also had a lot of chronic pain. Um, I, I, because of all my injuries, at least I thought it was because of my injuries. The doctors always said it was. Um, I had chronic back pain. Um, I had, I'd get numbness in my arm because the nerve for your arm comes from the neck where you know, it was broken. Um, I had three herniated discs where the man had like smashed me on the ground. Um, always had terrible tension in my neck um, and I just thought I'd have to deal with it um, I was actually paralyzed several times I was rushed from a movie set once um, to the hospital to to um, emergency room because um, I, I just could, had no feeling or power in my whole body from my chest down like I remember looking at my feet and they just wouldn't move like crawling to the bathroom in my arms you know it's it, thank god like I said all these things were temporary but at the time you don't know that. <laughs> and, and so I carried around this story in the back of my head that one of these days I'm gonna have an episode and the feeling's not gonna come back and I'm gonna be in a wheelchair and I'm gonna be you know, um, facing surgeries. And this is, you know, and so I, that was a, also a burden I carried around for a while, long time actually. But about six or seven years ago, I came across a new paradigm in psychology that I got very excited about. And I went to London to do some training. And after this six month training course, all my pain went away. I've been going to the chiropractor every month for 25 years. And I've been pain free for six years now. And not only the pain has gone away, but um, IBS, allergies, asthma, eczema. You know, I, I never thought of myself as a sick person, but I had a lot of chronic physical issues that just kept recurring and revolving. Uh, that I always thought I just had to cope with. And I now um, I now specialize in my coaching work with um, the mind-body connection and seeing how all those injuries I had had actually healed. All injuries heal within four to six weeks. So, I said, so when I started learning about this, I got curious, why am I still experiencing pain, you know, 20 something years after those injuries have healed? And what I see now is that the 
hypervigilance from the trauma, the constant worrying um, up in my head, judging, supervising, monitoring, hypervigilance kind of thinking was keeping my nervous system revved up. And I see now that the pain and the asthma, the eczema, all those things were like, um, like smoke alarms going off. Like they were trying to, my body was trying to get my attention to slow down. I, I never felt safe, even with friends, you know, sitting in a restaurant or working in a lovely place with amazing people. I was always, you know, on guard, always on edge. And, and now I'm not because I know that, um, I understand how experience is created that I'm that we're always feeling our thinking that we can never be broken. Um, I, I feel safe most of the time. And I live in Israel where we have a lot of terror. You know, it's and I actually feel safe um, because safety is a state of mind. I realize that now. And so a combination of finding out I'm not my story, I'm not even my thinking. And understanding that every thought I've ever had is always moving through, it always passes, and that I can never be broken. It's kind of, you know, brought me to a place now where I thought I'd be dead by now. And here I am feeling fitter and, and healthier than I ever have in my life. So um, that's kind of, I guess, my story in a nutshell. Um, there's, uh, yeah, a lot happened <laughs> and and still more to happen. I'm now writing books about it. I've written, say, written three books and uh, and I've got at least ideas for three more. So I'm really loving being alive now. Wow, that is very powerful and quite a traumatizing story. I think like to hear that not only once did it happen, but three times it happened. Mm -hmm. Is that kind of common in that area? No, I, I don't know anybody else. It's happened to three times. I mean, you know, I, I know people in from South Africa, for example, who've been carjacked. I, I know people in New York who've been, you know, attacked maybe. But um, yeah, it's I think it's pretty rare as far as I know. I'm just thinking, like, is it more common than people think? Not necessarily three times, but just doesn't go reported because the police are not helpful with that or? Yeah, I mean, like the... The first and first and third times I didn't go to the police, you know, so um, it was only the middle one I went and because it's it's really hard. They um, like the kid that uh, actually I did go to the police on the third one because the kid who attacked me with a bicycle. Um, when he my, my friends who I was visiting that night, their daughter heard him bragging in school about it the next day. He was bragging that he'd stolen a bicycle from a girl that was already on it. And he thought it was hilarious. And he sold my bike for about um, $70. And so when he found out that we knew who he was, he actually went to their house and set their trash cans on fire to threaten them not to do anything. And at which point the mother begged me to go to the police because, you know, she has small children in the house. So I remember now I did go to the police station the third time, but it was only under protest because I was like, you know, they're not going to do anything. I know they're not. Um, but he did actually get picked up later for stealing cars. So I don't know what happened to him. Um, probably not a, a good life. I can imagine being, you know, 16 and put in the, in the juvenile detention system. I am, um, you know, I, and I never had any resentment at these people who hurt me um, because they didn't know me. It wasn't personal. Uh, I just was kind of angry at the world more than the individuals. Yeah. When you mentioned PTSD from 
all of these muggings. This is probably a silly question and I don't know the answer. So I'm going to ask it. Is PTSD kind of a forever thing that sometimes it just sits in the back of your mind or is it like something that I don't want to say can disappear because that's not the right language, but is it a forever thing or is it just like a temporary thing? I'm so glad you asked that question, really, <laughs> you know, because it's not it's not a silly question at all. There's going to be a if you ask like 10 different people, you're going to get 10 different answers. There's a whole range of um, opinions about this. So I'm happy to tell you mine. Um, I don't even. I'm even loath to use the label. I just use it because it's a common language and people will, you know, will know what we're talking about. Um, PTSD to me is um, reliving and reliving the event. And that 10 years that I kept reliving it on a multiple times a day was an innocent misunderstanding of how my mind was working at the time. I was basically torturing myself with my own thinking. Now, if anybody's listening and they're going through it themselves, I, I really don't want anybody to hear that they're at fault or to blame. It's, it's not, we'd all do better if we knew better. I didn't know that I didn't have to listen to my thinking. I always thought that if a thought comes in my head, I have to listen to it. So when the story would repeat and repeat and this voice was saying, you know, like last time you left the house, you almost died, then see like even that sharp in-breath like that activates the fight or flight response mm -hmm. and so my continuous thinking about it was keeping my nervous system revved up all the time so PTSD is kind of like um it's kind of I mean it's a mixture of things it's it's not so simple but a, a lot of it is um a continuation of the hyper alert like that's one of the major symptoms they say of PTSD is being hyper alert for me it was the sound of footsteps behind me you know I went like years later I could be on the beach in California um, with friends beautiful sunny day and if someone ran past me like they could be jogging or you know a kid running for a bus I go <gasps> you know my nervous system would just react now that eventually went away um it, you know it did go away my nervous system did calm down and it and um it you know and I haven't I've only had it once, you know, it was about a year ago I had it. Um, it kind of came up because I was in the park early in the morning walking and two men were jogging and they separated and went around me, which is not a nice thing to do to a woman, right? Um, they weren't thinking. They were just like wanted to carry on their conversation and kept going. And I felt my nervous system go. <gasps> and then I remember I went up in my head and I was thinking, "You should." it was 30 years ago. You shouldn't be feeling like this. You know, like what? You're a counselor, you know, trauma kind of coach. You shouldn't. And then I am so grateful for this understanding because I caught myself. I caught myself starting a, you know, a stress response. And I breathed and I stopped. And, and I, because I knew I was safe. You know, it was totally fine. I'm in a public park at eight o'clock in the morning. There's lots of people around walking their dogs and stuff. And then I had a massive insight. And I think this is what is so powerful when we have insights, because that's transformational. You know, you could read all the books about PTSD and trauma and stuff and still be like terrified to leave the house. When we have an insight and we have a shift in our thinking, then everything changes without anything actually needing to change. And my insight was that if I was walking in a park in Israel where Hebrew is the you know national language and I heard someone say speaking with a Manchester accent, 
I'd also look around. I'd also see, you know, what is that? Maybe it's somebody I know. Maybe it's somebody I know, somebody I know. Manchester, the attack, you know, working in Hollywood. These are all parts of my history, if you like. I'm not in denial about them. They happened, but they're not happening now. They're in the past. You know, working on a movie with Eddie Murphy is in the past as much as being beaten is in the past. And, you know, England winning the World Cup or whatever. You know, it's like, you know, everything is in the past. We only have right here, right now. And right here, right now, I'm safe. We only have now. And the only reason I continue to suffer for all those years with what is labeled PTSD is because I kept bringing the past back into the present moment by reacting and reliving those thoughts innocently and now I don't need to and even if I get a memory about it which is very rare or even like telling my story today I can tell the story in graphic detail because I'm telling it from a a good mood from a, a better state of mind I can tell it with understanding even compassion But if I were to tell that story from a low mood, which is what PTSD really is, it's like, you know, really low, heavy mood most of the time. I'm crying, you're crying, it's a disaster, right? Mm -hmm. If I tell that same, so the same story, depending on my state of mind, it's gonna be a completely different experience. So when I work with people with trauma now, I rarely actually get them to tell me about the trauma, like what happened, because it's just gonna drag us down. Now. Again, it's not about denial. If they need to talk about it, that's fine. But that's not where the healing is. I think the healing is where understanding it's not what we're thinking, but that we're thinking. When you understand the mechanism, when you understand how experience is created, we don't have to be a victim of it. And that's where the growth and the healing come from. That's a huge insight. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. Because I don't like, I really don't believe that we can ever be broken because there's a lot of, you know, theories in in the kind of, you know, trauma informed world that, you know, if you've had this kind of trauma, then you're going to be this kind of damaged or if this kind of trauma, you need this amount of treatment. Mm -hmm. And that's a very um, limiting way to live because two people are not going to have the same reaction to the same event ever. Like, if you think about it, it, think about watching a movie with a, you know, a spouse, a friend, you know, a partner, and one of you's loving it, and one of you's hating it. Well, who's right, <laughs> right? It can't be the movie that's creating the experience. It's your thinking about the movie that is creating mm-hmm. the individual's experience. And the same is true of trauma. I know people who are beat up way more than me. I've met, you know, done a lot of trauma counseling over 30 years. I've met people in horrific situations being kidnapped and, you know, um, all, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, like think of a prison guard. They might get exposed to violence every day and they go home and they eat dinner and, you know, that's part of their job. So there is no cause and um, cause and effect. There's There's only thought created experience and depending on my state of mind that's how I'm going to experience each thing because that's how you can you know see someone you know drop their toast and they have a meltdown right (laughs) and somebody else could have you know been a car accident and they're like concerned about other people so you know it's it's all relative that's so interesting and so true but most of us 
like, I mean, I can speak for myself, I guess. I never think of it in that way. So mm -hmm. I think that was like a mic drop, mic drop moment there mm -hmm. for everybody. So thank you for that. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> One of the other questions I had for you was when you had mentioned being a trauma coach, you shifted then from the entertainment industry to that. Was there, was there like a, I guess anything that happened in particular to make you do that switch or was it just like, felt like you're calling? Um, it wasn't so much a switch. I, I kind of did both at the same time for many years. Like I said, in, in okay. between, in between projects, I would do a lot of, you know, co voluntary coaching work. It's only been in the last maybe um, 10 years that I've been doing it as a full-time job um, and writing. So now I, I write books, I do group coaching and programs and speak at conferences and do wellness retreats and things like that. So that's become like my, my career now. I haven't, I left the film business about, um, gosh, about 20 years ago now. I was a school teacher for five years and then, then did the coaching thing. So um, it, it has, it, it feels like it's been a calling, but it was kind of like parallel with the entertainment stuff for a while. And now, you know, now it's become full-time. And especially now with this new understanding that I'm sharing with people that to me is way more hopeful of this idea that, you know, we all have innate well-being, that you can't be broken, um, that it, we can definitely feel like, I, I felt like I was broken, but that was um, an innocent misunderstanding I thought I was my thinking. I thought I was my trauma. But now, um, I can say now I know that's not true. I'm, you know, we, we all have this innate resilience in us. I have another like burning question for you. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you've noticed on my Instagram, but I've recently started like a mini series on the podcast. So it's called, and there's gonna be multiple parts, but it's, I am not my diagnosis. So I want to touch on the more stereotyped, the more stigmatized, like the quote unquote bad, scary, violent, whatever you seem to think they are. I want to focus on those. And one of them was actually PTSD. And I was researching because I want to actually learn more about them myself, but then also have, you know, facts and truth behind what I'm telling people. Mm -hmm. So I was actually looking at PTSD for quite a number of hours a while ago and I was fascinated but really disappointed I guess at the same time for how the media specifically more so like the film industry shows PTSD and all the other disorders and diagnoses but do you have any insight into that especially being um, in that industry yourself <laughs> uh yeah because because it's it's entertaining that's why people, it gets blown out of proportion. I'm not saying um, it doesn't happen. People's, cause I, like one of my colleagues was in um, the army here. Like we have conscription in, in Israel. And so every kid in the, who's 19, 20 gets to be in the army for two years. And my colleague, um, when it was his turn to be in the army, he was a medic and it was during the Lebanon war and his unit was ambushed. Everybody in his unit was killed in front of him. He lost his own eye trying to save his friends. Can, you can't imagine the you know, the trauma he he went through. Um, he was helicoptered out and and thank God survived. And we were we were at a conference and he was telling his story and he said that he gets, and this is 
this was about six years ago, he told this story. He said, he said, I still get flashbacks. And that was like 12 years after the war. Um, and he said, I get flashbacks three or four times. And then he hesitated. And we were all like on the edge of our seat, like three or four times a year, three or four times a month. And he said, no, three or four times a day. And then someone asked him, he said, so that means you've had one since you've been talking to us. He goes, yeah. And he had such incredible um, wisdom and, and his resilience was just showing. He's telling this story, this, a smile. Obviously he's not laughing, it's not, a, it's not a funny story, but it's not who he is. I mean, he has a glass eye now and he's a psychologist and he works in a hospital in Tel Aviv with, with children. And he works with veterans in his spare time and does amazing work with them. Um, but like he told us the story that he went to Barcelona for the weekend and he didn't realize it was the Spain's national holiday. So there were fireworks going up, boom, 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 boom. And when he came out the airport, his nervous system went, whoop, you know, and he, but he sat on the curb, you know, where you're waiting for your taxis outside an airport. And he just waited for it to pass. And what I've learned from like my teacher is a retired psychiatrist. And what my, my teacher told me is that if, you know, if you have a flashback, the life of a flashback is about three minutes from the minute it like, you know, sparks something in the nervous system and passes through, if you don't feed it or fight it. Now, feeding it and fighting it means, oh my gosh, why is this happening to me? I can't believe this is happening. I've done all this work. I spent all this money on you know, treatment and I'm so that's feeding it and fighting it. And then the nervous system thinks that you're in danger and keeps the adrenaline, the cortisol going. And it's harder and harder to like calm down afterwards. I'm, I'm also trained as a first responder in a, a psychotrauma unit um, where we go to, you know, a scene of a, um, a crisis or an accident or something. And um, so that's where I learned a lot about, you know, how the fight or flight response works. And so he just, he knew it was going to pass because he knew what was happening. He didn't panic, breathed, passed, and he went off and had a great weekend. Now, if he didn't understand what was happening, he'd probably be either in the hospital or on the next plane back to Tel Aviv, right? But understanding is everything. So just to go back to your question about diagnosis, actually, this is the topic of my, my next book. So I'm researching it as well. And personally, um, I, I absolutely believe that if you were to open the DSM, you, you, know, you know what the DSM is, right? Yeah. Yeah. So for, for the for the listeners, it's like it, it's uh, it's like the Bible, if you like, of um, a dictionary of uh, mental health diagnoses. I guarantee you, if you open that book on any page, at the at the beginning of all of those diagnoses was prolonged stressful thinking. For some people, prolonged stressful thinking ends up in chronic pain, like it did for me. Other people, it can end up in alcoholism or, or um, you know, hurting themselves. Some people, it's, you know, violence towards others and violence towards themselves. Some people, it's talking to themselves. Um, you know, if you're in such mental distress, then maybe flipping out into an alternate, you know, universe is actually wisdom. It's a way of coping, you know, if, especially mm -hmm. if suicide is not an option. You know, it's a way, most of those um, behaviors that it describes in that book are coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of my colleagues, um, Dr. Judy Sedgman, she, she told me a fantastic definition of a diagnosis. I don't know if this would interest you, but um, she said, a diagnosis is like, she said, imagine, imagine you've had the flu for two weeks 
and you feel absolutely rotten. You've got a pimple on the end of your nose. You, you're having a really bad hair day. Um, the person you hate at work got the promotion because you were out sick. Someone scratched your car and didn't leave a note. It's a horrible, horrible day. And someone comes along and takes your photograph and says, oh, this is going to be your ID picture for the rest of your life. And you're like, <laughs> no. right? So a diagnosis can describe how someone is on any given day. Like if you'd caught me in those horrible PTSD days, you know, I, I would have filled all those categories, you know, had all those mm -hmm. symptoms. Um, but maybe two hours later when my friend came over with pizza, I was probably feeling a bit better, right? It comes and goes. No, no diagnosis is true 24 seven. And even when I've met people who say, no, I'm depressed all the time. I'd say, really? Because if I followed you around with a camera for the next 24, 48 hours, are you telling me you won't feel a, even a little bit better some of the time they go no 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 I'm like not even when the pizza arrives not even when your favorite show is on tv or if your grandkids show up like they say well that's just a little bit better so you can be a little bit better because if you can be a little bit better then you can also be a little bit more better and that's what I was saying about hope and and that we're never broken I've I've actually got um the book I'm writing right now I'm collecting stories of hope of people with all kinds of diagnosis from OCD PTSD, um, psychosis, schizophrenia, um, bulimia, anorexia, you name it. I've got examples of people of when they understand how experience is created, they've gotten well. That because when you're when you're in a better mood, you're not gonna do anything to hurt yourself. Right? Like, have you ever heard someone in a good mood say, I need to work on my self-esteem? <laughs> Right? Nope. <laughs> no one in a really good mood starves themselves or hurts themselves, right? Those guys that hurt me, they were having some really stinky thinking. It, it's not an excuse. It's an explanation. When does this book come out? <laughs> That sounds um, phenomenal. I want to get my hands um, on it. <laughs> yeah, I, I well, I, I probably another year. I, I'm still collecting the stories right now. I've written the introduction part. The, okay. the first part of the book is is kind of like um, basically a, a history of the DSM um, and how I see psychiatry has got it backwards, mm -hmm. you know, saying that we're broken and we have to live this cope with these things for the rest of our lives. No, it's not true. I, and and then so the middle part of the book is going to be all these stories. I've already got about thirty of these stories of people who've recovered and are. When I say recovered, I mean, they're not in treatment. They're not on medication. They're not having to do mindfulness or any kind of meditation or anything. They're just living beautiful lives. And then the third part of the book is going to be um, organizations that, that I've got um, familiar with that use these same ideas with um, in prisons and schools where they take these ideas that we have, you know, innate resilience and well-being. Um, so it's, yeah, writing books takes a while. So this, I'm, I'm researching nudging people for the stories because everybody's busy and it's trying to get them I mean my my, my other books I've written so far are stories so because I found sometimes you know people don't really want to read another textbook so my other three books the ones I've published already are actually novels um, where the characters do the suffering and the falling down and the getting up and the healing and the happy endings um, and where where can we find these books? Um, thank you. So <laughs> they are all on Amazon. Um, okay. The first one is called The Myth of Low Self-Esteem. That's the, that was, um, I thought I'd only ever write one book. 
you know, so I kind of threw all my stories into that one. The the, the whole trauma stories in it. It's it's written about a, a character called Deborah. She's like my alter ego. Um, and then the Hollywood stuff and, you know, all that's in, in that book. Um, and then the second one is called Painless. That's the one about recovering from the chronic pain. And it's set actually in Australia because um, I worked on a movie called Babe. Do you remember Babe, the talking pig? And Yeah. That's right? so cool. Yeah, so uh, we got an Academy Award for for that one for the special effects, um, and I, I made the dogs in that one. So we we shot that in Australia for six months, and that's where I actually found out that my neck had been broken. So I set the story there uh, in a like a fictional clinic. So all the characters are based on people like uh, clients of mine and you know experiences that happened to me, but I set it in fictional situations to kind of make it interesting in the novel. And the one I've just written came out in February. My new one is called Very Well. And it's a novel about women, hormones, and why Freud was wrong. Um, and it was an Amazon number one bestseller for a few days, which is, <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, I love that. Um, so yeah, that one's about um, uh, like hormone distress and how the, these ideas that I share with people, there isn't a situation that they don't um, apply to. I've got colleagues who use these this understanding in business, you know, in marketing or say in prisons or at the Mayo Clinic. There's because when you understand how the mind works, there isn't an area of life where that's not important, right? Mm-hmm. From, from relationships to business to uh, you know to health and finances, um, when you understand that you're always feeling your thinking, and that thought is always moving then you don't have to be a victim of it. And, and in a better mood, we get to be a better partner or a better salesperson or a better you know, coach or a better teacher. Um, it's re- it really is a healing, beautifully healing thing. Do you have any socials that anybody can follow you on? Sure. Um, I am on Facebook. Um, I'm an old lady, so I like Facebook. <laughs> a teenager told me that the other day that Facebook was for old ladies. I'm like, gee, thanks. Um, <laughs> so yeah, you can find me on Facebook. I have a, a group um, that has about 3,000 people in it now. Um, but just like friend me on Facebook and I can hook you up with that. Um, I have a website. It's my name. So my name is Hannah, but it's spelled C-H. Um, for, if you can't see it, it's C-H-A-N-A-S-T-U-D-L-E-Y, hannahstudley.com. And on there is all information about my different programs and books and um, retreats and stuff. Um, I do appear on Instagram sometimes. I've got an account, but it's like um, I forget about it and don't post very often. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I I do book clubs like so um, right now I'm running a book club on on very well um, because I've got a bunch of ladies. um, We're reading the book together each week. And next month I'm launching launching a, um, a membership program. So the membership program, yeah, I'm really excited about this. So the membership program is going to be like a, a monthly fee. And for that, I will do um, once a week, do a group coaching session. Um, the book club will be part of it. I have a, a client who's a fitness coach. So there'll be a fitness um, part of it each week. Not not that being fit is, is important, but I think it's important to be healthy. Um, mm-hmm you know, moving your body and, and just taking care of yourself. So she's, uh, you know, got a master's degree in, in uh, physical education and she's going to give um, Zooms. And um, and then I, I've been recording a whole bunch of like thought for the day videos, just, 
you know, talking about anxiety or talking about, um, you know, how we're always feeling our thinking or, you know, chronic pain or just ideas that come into my head and I make like a, I don't know, three or four minute video and they're going to be in the membership group every day and people can post and ask questions. So it's going to be like a community because if, you know, if social media died tomorrow, then we'll, we'd all, you know, be lost. So the, it'll be on my, it's on my website and I'm going to launch that in a couple of weeks. So exciting well i'm glad we all know where we can find you and all of the books i'm gonna go on amazon later today <laughs> <laughs> great but i just wanted to say thank you so much for being a guest and for sharing your wisdom and your insight and your story and i think i got some words of wisdom and encouragement from you despite not personally having experience with ptsd so i know that the listeners will also get some words of wisdom and some encouragement and support there as well so Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for asking that me. That was incredible. And I guess for my listeners, until next time, I'm sending you lots of love and lots of light. <laughs>